Hello and welcome to this episode of Psych Attack. I'm Dr. Jasmine B. MacDonald. Today, Dr. Erica McIntyre and I discuss environmental psychology and the connection between human and planetary well-being. I hope you're going well and have settled in with a warm cup of tea. Hey there, Erica. Welcome. Thanks so much for coming to have a chat with me today. Hi, Jasmine. It's really great to be here. So I want to start with a very super serious question. What music are you just loving right now? Are there any (laughs) bands or musicians or songs that you can't get enough of? Oh, God, that's such a great question. Um, There's so much good stuff. I I think you know that I'm a big music fan. Uh Uh-huh. That's why I thought I I know exactly where I'm going to start with this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, great. Um, Yeah, Amel and the Sniffers. I've ordered the new album with pretty coloured vinyl and I'm waiting for that to arrive. But I just can't get enough of the single. I don't know what it's called now. Yes. But, um, yeah, love it. Really sort of a classic punk style. Yeah, with really good kind of rhythm and catchy tunes and great lyrics too. So, yeah, loving that at the moment. Nice. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out. One of the albums that I've gotten hooked on on the last couple of days is... The new John Mayer album, I don't know if you've heard it, but it's very 80s soft rock and it's just a bit dreamy. It's really nice. There's like really soft guitar solos. Yeah. But I'm a bit um, partial to punk music as well. So uh, looking forward to checking that out. Yeah. My music taste is very eclectic. So yeah, it's nice to have that contrast, you know, a nice bit of hardcore punk and then, you know, you can chill out if you want to, to something like John Mayer. Exactly. (laughs) All right. So before we get stuck into discussing the impact of the environment on health and well-being, I like to start with an introduction to Erica. What's your pathway to uh, where you are now? And what is your training and background? Yeah, my um, my background's kind of eclectic and, and it's funny you should ask about music because my first career was I was a graphic designer and primarily in the music industry. So that's where I started out. Oh, that's awesome. I did that work for the better part of a decade through the 90s into early 2000s. And it so wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I was working in that era where there were record stores producing a lot of uh, what's called point of sale materials. So, you know, you've got a lot of stuff going to landfill, advertising materials, all that kind of stuff. And I just got to the point of I was sick of being exploited, doing long hours, poor pay Mm. producing landfill I wanted to do something meaningful I was like oh what am I going to do I was really interested in politics and I thought oh maybe I'll do political science and then I thought about that and I thought oh I don't really want to go into politics (laughs) (laughs) Um, the other thing I was interested in was naturopathy and that came from having an experience with a naturopath because doctors at the time couldn't treat a health condition that I had. I had a really great GP at the time who recommended I see a naturopath. Hmm. So I did and it was a friend of mine's wife and she was fantastic and I got better. And I think I was also interested in that because of the whole idea of nature cure and natural medicines and sort of there was a connection there to the environment that I was already interested in. Mm. Yeah, so I just had a personal interest in the importance of the environment. You know, I was a member of Greenpeace, all that kind of stuff. I was vegetarian, then I was vegan. That interest in the environment was there. I started with naturopathy 
And back then, it was actually a qualification when you did it part-time that was built on individual uh, diplomas. So I started with Western Herbal Medicine and a Bachelor of Health Science. The Western Herbal Medicine, I loved. I really loved it. I loved the philosophy around it. It made a lot more sense to me than something like homeopathy. What's homeopathy? I'm not very good at describing the philosophy, but it's basically you're diluting like a plant or an element, if you like, to the point where it's almost not detectable. I, I know I'm technically explaining this really badly, but it's <laughs> essentially almost like the essence of the plant or what the element or whatever it is that is having the medicinal effect. Okay. I just didn't relate to it, but I have had really great experiences with it when I've seen really good homeopathic practitioners. So my scientific brain just collapses when I think about the idea of it. So it wasn't for me. Um, <laughs> yeah, so because that was part of what I had to do for naturopathy at the time, I was like, yeah, no, nah, I'm going to finish with herbal medicine and I'm going to continue with uh, nutrition separately. So when I actually ended up practicing as a herbalist, I ended up seeing a lot of people with mental health problems. It's just what came through the door. I realised I was woefully underprepared. So we just did not do enough mental health or virtually any in my training as as a herbalist. Mm. And the other thing I I thought too was uh, what I really loved about what I was doing was the counselling side of it. You know, I was doing a lot of behaviour change work, um, you know, getting people to eat better and walk and you know, just exercise more, whatever it might be. Right. Yeah. So that sort of led me to think, well, well, what can I do with mental health that's going to upskill me? And I thought, ah, oh, you know, psychology. So that's sort of where I ended up with a psychology degree. Awesome. That pathway from, you know, your other disciplinary training and your interest in nature and the environment into psychology is really interesting. And then you went on from your psych degree to do a PhD as well. Yeah, that's right. So I should say that as part of my health science degree, I did I did a lot of public health type subjects. So I did health promotion and I did issues in human nutrition and health in the environment. So yeah, I did some of that public health stuff in that Bachelor of Health Science. Yeah, so in the psych degree, I, um, I did an honours degree in psychology. For my honours, I actually looked at compulsive internet use. So something completely unrelated. And I loved my honours year and I loved doing the research. But my intention was I was going to use my psych qualification to become a clinical psychologist and integrate that with herbal medicine practice. I thought that was going to be the perfect way to help people with mental health problems. Sure. That didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I applied for clinical masters and didn't get in and got told to do a PhD first, which I thought was quite outrageous. Whoa, that doesn't sound like great advice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, it was because I wasn't competitive. It was a highly competitive program at the time. Mm. And there were a lot of, you know, really experienced clinicians that I was competing with to get into the masters. So I didn't have any of that, you know, clinical psychology background. Right. So, yeah. And then the PhD thing happened and I loved I loved research I loved everything about it and I really wanted to make a difference and I felt like by doing research I could make a bigger difference to more people than I could one-on-one in a site consult 
Mm. I think that's really awesome. The loop that's happened there of what doors open and what doors close, but then finding yourself in a situation where actually you've you've really enjoyed research. Yeah, yeah, I do. I really love it. I love the whole process. The other thing I love too, which is different from clinical practice, is working as a team, like working with other people and, you know, learning from other people, supporting other people. And I really didn't like that about being in clinical practice, especially as a solo practitioner when I was a herbalist. So I was actually glad I'd made that choice not to go down that clinical path in the end. I have a point that I want to go to then, and it was a a term that I had heard in you describing your work. Um, Transdisciplinary, the approach, you know, in the context that you've been working within. So that's the idea that you're working not only across disciplines with other academics, but you're also working with the end users, whoever it is that's going to be impacted by the research. So everybody's collaborating. Mm. All the stakeholders are collaborating in the process at some point. Mm. You know, the idea is that's how you get the best outcomes. Well, it makes a lot of sense, right, to not just sit by yourself or just sit in a research team all with the same disciplinary background and then just assume that whatever you develop is going to be set for implementation. Engaging stakeholders and different perspectives makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think that the assumption often is that researchers just lock themselves away in a room and they think and they they might write and they read, um, but they're maybe not connected with the, the systems that they're trying to influence. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And um, I guess for me, I I realised quite early on in psychology that it was more, I was more attracted to the social psychology side of things, you know, and the influence of others, you know, and it sort of intuitively came to me like it was an, or it was an understanding that I had that, you know, it's very difficult for individuals to change if the system's broken um, and they don't have the capacity because they're constrained by the system that they're in. And so that's sort of why I was more attracted to a public health approach where you're actually looking at health prevention and promotion rather than waiting until somebody gets to you in clinic and you've got to, you know, help them solve a problem that they might have not have had otherwise. Mm. So that's where my research is now is looking at, okay, well, what can we do at a system within a system to actually prevent mental ill health or even physical ill health, but also promote health so that we can be the best that we can be. Mm, Absolutely. Let's talk about environmental psychology. I think this is a, a tough ask, but how would you define it? You know, you meet somebody who doesn't have a psych background and maybe isn't all that interested in nature or the environment. What do you tell them to explain the broader area of psychology that you're interested in? Yeah, so I think environmental psychology is quite broad. So it, it's, it's a bit of a mix. It's a mix of social science. It's also understanding how people relate to their environment. And it's also understanding the impact of um, environments on mental health. There's a lot of different ways you can approach environmental psychology. What might be nice in this episode is to look at a couple of examples of your work to get a better understanding of what you do, we could start with the Predictors of Worry about Environmental Contamination Project and um, maybe just starting broad. How would you describe this project? Yeah, sure. So I was actually brought into this project as part of my postdoc, which was an unusual postdoc. So 50% of my position was on complementary uh, medicine and integrative medicine research. 
and the other half was with the Institute of Sustainable Futures working on stuff like the impact of contamination. So basically healthy environments. So this project was funded by the Environmental Trust, New South Wales. We actually surveyed residents uh, across Australia. Um, It was quite a big survey looking at how they were impacted by contamination and contamination remediation management. So that's the process of the cleanup. And what we know is that's often handled pretty badly. So it's handled pretty badly in terms of communication, the way um, the contaminators communicated to the community, the way the community is involved in the remediation practice itself. There's a lot of uncertainty about the risks around different types of contamination. And so all of those factors come into play with how people respond to that situation. And it's those psychological responses around, you know, worry and uncertainty and those kind of things that um, we were interested in. I was really interested in reading through the work and reflecting as someone who, you know, did most of my training and grew up in regional centres, that kind of urban focus. And I felt really naive, especially as someone with sociological training and being really interested in the social systems that we live in to really have never put a lot of thought into, all right, well, living in an urban context, what actually is around me now in Melbourne? You know, what potential contaminants are there? I honestly never really put a lot of thought into it. Yeah, I, I mean, I thought that part was interesting and I don't know, I'm, I'm, pr- I'm thinking I'm probably not alone on that and that's concerning. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. You're prob- yeah, it's largely invisible and I think that's the thing. Um, it's not something you see necessarily. I mean, you can, right? So, uh, you know, you might hear descriptions of people who have water contamination and they'll describe what the water looks like. But, but sometimes, and this, this is the case for something like lead, uh, it's not something you see. And even in terms of air pollution, you don't necessarily see air pollution either. It's not something that people think about day to day. What's interesting in this area is that the well-being impacts and the impacts on day-to-day living and that kind of thing aren't as uh, well studied as the uh, physical impacts of the contaminant itself. Right. The actual experience of living in a contaminated area isn't as well researched. The key thing that that comes up for me in thinking about that is the relationship between worry or mental health and physical health. You know, they are so closely related to look at them separately is not a holistic understanding. It doesn't lead to interventions or outcomes that are useful. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's right. So I find that interesting. Um, In terms of environmental health, this has often been the case where, you know, there tends to be a focus on that linear relationship between a contamination and the physical impact. There hasn't been that link between, okay, I'm worried about exposure to lead or whatever the contamination is. It's hard to get away from in my environment. I can't move from where I am. I can't sell my house because my property values change. So all of these other things that happen around the management of that contamination that causes stress and worry and all of that thing, and it often occurs for a very long period of time. So these things don't resolve quickly. They last years or like months or years. Right. You've got a potential physical problem. Then you've also got the mental health impact on top of that which can cause a physical problem as well if it's left for too long. Mm. And the other thing that's interesting about it is 
We don't really know how much of the risk perception itself is responsible for this worry. So sometimes the, the risk perception um, doesn't align with the actual health risk as well. So a lot of the time the health risk isn't as substantial as people think it might be. Mm, sure. What do you think were some of the takeaway messages from that project? The purpose of the project was to actually inform a guideline that was going to be used by remediation uh, management practitioners. It was a guide for them on how to engage with residents or communities who'd been impacted by contamination and in a way that reduces the mental health impacts, the worry, um, and also helps communities feel more empowered to take control over uh, the process as well or be involved in the process because loss of control was uh, a factor uh, in increasing worry as well around the contamination and the remediation process itself. Mm -hmm. The key message was that what we've discovered is that people need to be communicated with early and they need to be communicated with in a way that presents the facts they need to have access to services that they trust. So trust is really important because often what happens is an element of distrust is created by the way things have been miscommunicated or mismanaged. Yeah, the potential health and mental health concerns that come along with that in other domains, those ripple effects, is really concerning when the original issue itself is already quite serious and important. Interesting if you consider that these are aspects that are all at that macro level where people working in psychology in terms of research and practice, whether or not they acknowledge it, these um, issues of contamination or climate change and, you know, one of the other aspects of your work, which is urban design, all of these aspects are influencing the work that psychologists are doing with people one-on-one, whether or not they realise it and directly acknowledge it. Yeah, Absolutely. And I'm still really interested in that aspect. I guess my research generally looks at health and wellbeing outcomes in, in a broader sense. And I'm still sort of, I'm still interested in some of those clinical mental health outcomes. One little tidbit that feels like I'm just throwing this in, but I think it was just around insights I was having while I was reading your work, not because I have a specific question about it, but was thinking about more than two thirds of the world's population are predicted to be living in an, in urban environments by 2050. Okay. So now you're talking big. So now you're talking planetary health. And I guess most of my research comes uh, with a planetary health framework. And um, this is also the area I teach in. So what that is, is that's actually looking at the, the health of civilizations. Um, so not just human health and not individual health uh, or population health, but health of civilizations and the natural systems on which they depend. You can look at the planet as one giant system and within that system are many other systems that have systems within them and systems within them. So you've got this really complex situation. When we look at um, the health of the planet at the moment, it's, it's bad. And we know that. We've got the IPCC report into climate change that's just come out. It's not looking good just from a climate change perspective. And then you've got all the other uh, environmental changes that are happening as well, like pollution, like biodiversity loss 
ocean acidification. So there's a whole lot of other environmental changes that are happening at the same time that are even impacted, uh, sorry, amplified by climate change. So it's a really complex problem. And that's where the systems thinking comes in to solve that problem and the transdisciplinary work because, you know, just psychologists or just um, scientists or, you know, just urban designers can't solve this problem. Mm. It's quite overwhelming when you look at that big picture. The way it becomes manageable is coming down to the local level and seeing what you can do at the local level and sort of that's why we tend to look at local urban environments in some of the work that we're doing because it's manageable and it's where you can make the impact. It's that global thinking, so we're aware of the issue and we know what the impacts are at a global level, but then coming down to that local level and going, well, there are things we can do because if we just think about that big picture, it's really overwhelming and it's scary and you go, whoa, I can't do anything about that. But Mm. you come back and, yeah, you can at that local level. You can make really significant changes in your environment, in the local environment and in the systems Mm. that will help people make individual changes as well. When I think about what it would be like to be a public health researcher in that context and thinking about wanting to influence behaviours of other people but also maintain my own motivation is when it is such a big and complex problem, we want to avoid people feeling like there's nothing that they can do Um, because sometimes that's a rationalisation as well. Well, why should I change what I'm doing because it's already such a big issue? So that kind of zooming in and looking at the local level and urban planning, I thought, um, as you're saying, is really interesting because it's around, okay, what's something that I might have a sense of control over but also a way to motivate other people of what it is that they can do personally. Um, it's really cool. Yeah, and it's really the only way we can move forward, I think, with this problem. Without ho- a sense of hope, you're paralysed. You know, there there are lots of good things happening. Um, so, you know, there is hope. Kind of demonstrates the personal passion that you have for it as well. This isn't the kind of topic that you get into or the work that you get into to switch off at 5 or 5.30 and not think about anymore, right? you you have to have these personal and social values that are aligned with the work that you're doing. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely do. But, you know, at the same time, that can be exhausting. Even, you know, this work's really important, but it's also, you know, you do have moments where it gets to you, for Mm. sure. You know, the climate, the grief is really real um, and the eco-anxiety as well. Keeping that in check for me, and and you know this has been shown in some of the research as well, is that I've, I'm doing something about it, and I'm lucky in that the work I do is part of that. Even things like and and this is a big part of planetary health, doing things that have co-benefits for the environment. So if you are going to have an intervention in the urban environment, one that has co-benefits for human and environmental health is going to, I guess, give you more bang for buck, right? Uh, and the same applies at the individual level. Like you could walk to work if if that's practical for you instead of taking the car because it's going to give you a physical and mental health benefit as well as being better for the environment because you're not, you know, taking the car out and using petrol or whatever. If you take personal action to make a change, that also decreases the kind of eco-anxiety that you might be having around you know all the awful stuff that we hear about Mm, sure 
I was wondering if we could just unpack a little bit that study, the built environment interventions for human and planetary health, because you're you're already touching on it and talking about, so what are those things that we can do that uh, might have planetary benefits, but also benefit the individual person? So I thought it was really awesome perspective to think about who are the professional groups that you could bring in or be considering and targeting as an environmental psych and a public health researcher to make an impact. In the project, you made the point that although the health system has a key role to play in addressing the health effects of human-generated climate change, so do groups like urban and regional planners, urban designers, landscapers, and architects. That's a, a really interesting project to to focus on for a sec. So is there anything else I know you've touched on some points from it, but was there anything else you wanted to highlight from that project? I was brought into that project at the same time I was I was brought into the Environmental Trust one on contamination. So that was uh, with a big team of people. So the idea was that the evidence that we collected around what elements of high-density urban environments had a uh, health impact was going to be used to help inform planning policy. That's sort of more of the work that we're actually currently doing, that kind of work. And the whole idea is that, you know, we want to be looking at how we can help urban planners and policymakers to create healthier places. Some of the work we've been doing in that area looks at retrofitting, if you like, so changing an existing area into something that's a bit more healthier. So that might be looking at, you know, places in the environment that we can we can change we have the capacity to change so it could be transforming a dead-end street into a park for example you know having the benefits of green space and increasing in in high density urban environments increasing green spaces which we know has a benefit on um, mental health access to green space Mm -hmm. one of the projects we've just been involved with is wrote a discussion paper for Health Infrastructure New South Wales around place-based planning for health precincts. The idea with that is looking at how health precincts are just more than just a hospital and what the environment around health precincts can, how that can benefit health and well-being and the livability of a place. Considering things like reducing, you know, carbon footprint, um, CO2 emissions, things like that, but that directly impact the environment. But also, how do those spaces, uh, how can they be designed so that they actually promote health and well-being in addition to the clinical services that they're accessing? Spaces where people can meet and socialise that uh, are in nature so they can have a biophilic effect and things like that. It's got me wondering, are there... Um, you know, medical precincts or parts of a city, either in Australia or internationally, where you or the team have been like, yes, that's ideal. That's the kind of thing that is, you know, someone listening could Google and get a sense of, yeah, right. I I can see how this might be different to what my local emergency or hospital is like. Oh yeah, for sure. So Singapore have done some incredible work in this area. They are way ahead of us in terms of that idea of um, place-based planning and integrating 
you know, green space and the natural environment uh, with the built environment for health benefits. Mm. This hospital that I'm thinking of, it actually has things like community gardens where people can actually come and learn how to garden and it's actually on the hospital site. Actually, I think it's on the roof of the hospital um, from memory. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's incredible when you see this building. And throughout the hospital itself, inside as well, it has plants throughout. So it the idea is that the overall design promotes health. You're not just going to a concrete building, getting a clinical service and leaving. The entire environment is promoting health and well-being, but not just for the patient, for other visitors at the site and the people who work there as well. Uh, a good Australian example is uh, Bendigo. Mm. Yep, Bendigo, that's a relatively new precinct. And, um, yeah, they've done some fantastic work on that site. They've actually worked with a local Aboriginal community there and they've created uh, a lot of great plantings with Indigenous plants to the area, increased the biodiversity as well. And that's coming back to those co-benefits they're looking at increasing local biodiversity, which is good for the planet, but they're also, you know, connecting um, with culture, with country, and increasing that natural environment is also having those added health benefits. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. That's uh, appreciating those knowledge holders and skill holders that have placed an emphasis on the environment and connection and sustainability of the environment learning from those traditional knowledge holders of how to embrace the environment and have a sustainable approach to to living. Yeah, absolutely. And look, planetary health isn't a new construct. It's what Indigenous populations know. It is their traditional knowledge. It's kind of embarrassing to think that we've created this term called planetary health and it's actually what (laughs) Indigenous populations have been living, you know. Yeah. But because we've sort of have labelled it, westernised it, it's now credible. It, yeah, it's embarrassing to think that's how it had to be recognised as being important is to westernise it. It's it's gross. Sorry, I have <laughs> have a real issue with it, you know, that... It, no, it is. I th- perfect phrase. It's gross and it's embarrassing. Yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah. When you gave that example of Singapore, I instantly got what you meant. I went to a conference uh, maybe 2017 in Singapore and just driving, you know, into the city from the airport and driving around the integration of, you know, plants on the sides of buildings, Mm. you know, whole sides of buildings. I think we're seeing that more in Melbourne, but the first time I think I saw it in Australia is, is this really cool building near UTS in Sydney, right on Spice Alley. And it has that, I think it's got a massive platform, but it has that beautiful, you know, cascading plants down the side of it. It's instantly changes how you feel as a human when you're looking through a landscape of cement and buildings, and then you see this beautiful green cascade of plants down the side of a building. Instantly, when I would see it on the train coming into the city, I would feel happy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's what they refer to as biophilic design. So it's integrating that natural environment with the built environment. And, yeah, well, we do know. We know that people, when they have access to green space and and there's, you know, emerging evidence about uh, the access to blue space as well and the impact on mental health, it definitely has benefits. You know, it does make us feel better. You know, ultimately we need to be connected with our natural environment. 
indigenous cultures know this and it's quite sad that we've lost that connection and that respect that is innate so I'd like to think that um we're slowly getting it back but I'd like to see it happen a lot faster (laughs) (laughs) we're not we're not going to be patient about this let's just make it happen already that's right (laughs) not that easy we have covered a lot of ground in a short period of time (laughs) and this is a topic and an episode that, yeah, I has made me think a lot and feels like me personally, you know, there was aspects of this conversation and things that I read in your work that felt like a bit of a personal call to action. And I consider myself generally someone who tries to be mindful and do things that are sustainable and try to connect to nature. But I think that, you know, it's really easy to slip back into routine and forget about the importance of some of these things. So I really appreciate you coming along and having a chat. And I know that there'll be people listening who will want to keep up to date with the things that you're doing. So I'm wondering where can we send them? What's the best place for them to follow the work that you're doing or to reach out to you? Sure. Well, I'm on Twitter. Highly recommend following Erica on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I kind of, I have the odd rant and, (laughs) um, but that's okay. Um, I love Twitter. I love Twitter. Yes, and I, I look, I have a blog, but it's not very well kept, I'll say that much. But my intention is to do something with it one day. But otherwise, um, yeah, I'm on Google Scholar. You can look at my published work there. Also, you can contact me through um, the University of Technology at the Institute of Sustainable Futures as well. I'm in the healthy environments research area there. Um, so if you'd like to know more about the work that we're doing, that's where you can find me. And I guess I just wanted to say to Jazz is that I really don't want people to feel guilty about not doing enough when it comes to the environment because everybody has different capacities. Mm. Some people can do more than others. Mm. Part of that capacity is is constrained by the system that you're in as well. You know, whatever it is that's right for you is okay. You know, even if it's you're doing the recycling right. Yeah, I really don't, you know, that guilt around not doing enough isn't helpful it's paralyzing just choose one thing you know that you can do and um you know that's that one thing is better than nothing that's a really nice point an important takeaway towards the end of the discussion that we've had because there are socioeconomic aspects and a range of um you know the ways that privilege and resources impact the choices we have in terms of the products that we consume and the places that we live and yeah, I think that's a really important takeaway. So yeah, thank you for making that point. Yeah, no, that's okay. And that's why we need to change our systems. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. I'm wondering as well, if there is any last things that you wanted to point out that, you know, like um, some shameless self-promotion, because we often are really busy doing the work and not promoting the work that we're doing. Is there anything coming up or um, outputs that you'd like to point people towards? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess we've got, what have we got coming up? We're actually in the process of working on some proposals and things at the moment and initiating new research. So there's nothing specific to look out for. Actually, one thing to look out for is uh, I was involved recently in an increasing resilience to climate change project that was a collaboration with local health districts and local councils across the western Parkland city area. 
in Sydney. We developed a research paper as part of that to inform the development of guidelines for local councils uh, to help them to implement climate change resilience and sustainability strategies. Cool. That's a collaboration with the Climate and Health Alliance and I'd strongly recommend you check out their work. Uh, they do fantastic work and we'll probably be doing further work in that area. So that's all I've got at the moment. <laughs> awesome. That, that's all. <laughs> that's no mean feat, my friend. <laughs> fantastic. Um, all right. Well, it is... Friday afternoon as we record this episode, any plans for the weekend? Yeah, more bushwalking. So I'm very lucky. I live in the Blue Mountains and uh, actually just before this podcast, uh, we've got this great loop around the back of our place that look, overlooks the escarpment into the Canimbla Valley. And so I did that loop with my dog. I'll probably be doing that loop again. Well, I hope that you enjoy your uh, bushwalking. I know that your staffy will. <laughs> as a fellow staffy lover yeah and yeah I just really want to thank you again for taking the time Erica the work you're doing is really interesting and, and important and I know that listeners will really enjoy um, hearing about your experiences and your insights so thank you so much awesome thanks Jazz For those of you at home, that's all for today. Show notes for the episode can be found at www.psychattack.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Psych Attack, please rate it on your favorite podcast platform and share this episode to help other people find the show. If you have questions or feedback, you can reach out on Twitter at Psych Attack Cast. Thanks for listening and we'll catch up with you again next time.